Thank you for joining us on another week of Surviving Creativity. I'm your co-host, Corey Cassoni, and I'm joined every week by cartoonists Brad Geiger and Scott Kurtz. We talk about following your dreams, becoming your own boss, and surviving the process. This week, we're happy to be joined by science fiction and fantasy author Sam Sykes. He's the creator of the Bring Down Heaven trilogy, the first book of which City Stained Red is available now. We've brought Sam on the show to talk to us about creativity and his process, but also to talk about the Hugo Awards. The famed Science Fiction and Fantasy Award has come under debate this week due to ballot stuffing and campaigning of authors and fans to get their favorite books on the list. Is this acceptable? Is it okay? What makes an award an award? Is it just a contest? Sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation. It's another week of Surviving Creativity. Sum up every female line of the first two seasons of Match. <laughs> it's a living. <laughs> Sam, I don't know if you, I don't know if you've listened to an episode before, but this is how we start. That's and okay. and, that's, and by that we mean just in the middle. Uh, survive, the then middle. someone goes surviving creativity. <laughs> All right, well, Sam, it's known as it's a literary term. It's called in medias res. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar. That you're no, not a real yeah. writer like us cartoonists. No, I, I, I'm, I'm just one of these fantasy hacks. Yeah, oh yeah, right, trying, exactly. Trying to make my my way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Making your world way in the world today takes everything you got. Stop! Wow. <laughs> Good lord. I like it's that. that, it's that kind of show at huh? any time. Normally, when Brad says something like that, our guests go, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sam just right out of the gate goes, wow. All right. <laughs> now that song stuck in my head. God damn it, Brad. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to get away? All right. Sorry. Sometimes uh, you gotta go. <laughs> no, don't. Uh, <laughs> I'm sailing away. <laughs> uh, so... Good morning. Uh, it's time for another episode of, of, of Scott yawning and, and Corey trying to digitally remove them all. Get some uh, coffee in you. No, I'm. F- I didn't drink coffee yet. I had a glass of milk. I don't know why I did that, but well, milk's just gonna put you back to sleep. That's what you drink at night. <laughs> oh, uh-huh. sorry, you're that's right. the night drink. That's the night drink. <laughs> no, that makes Alice grow big. You need to think that makes- you can't do that. There's rules. Um, I'm Scott Kurtz. Why are we doing it this way? <laughs> We've never done it this way. You just started doing it this way. We've never done it this way. We just talk, and and then it works at the end. With us today, on a very short notice, because he's a kind human being. He's the oh. person we have to introduce. He's the only one. Is fantasy author Sam Sykes. Hi. Hi, Sam. Hi, Sam. Author of Hello. the Aeon's Gate uh, trilogy, right? Or is it going more than three? Uh, yeah, the Aeon's Gate trilogy was the first trilogy. The new one is the Bring Down Heaven trilogy with uh, the city stained red. Mm. And we is have the- you here today uh, to talk about a kerfuffle with the Hugo Awards. Yeah, kerfuffle is a polite word. 
for it. I think so. Like, it's it's slowly becoming like gang violence, but that's funny because among- earlier Sam told me it was a real clusterfuck. You could call it clusterfuck. You could call it meltdown. Like, right. There are a few words you could use that wouldn't fit what's sure. going on. What's funny is I had no idea. I had no clue. And yeah. I just saw an article that was like, oh, Pete, some people think that there was a campaign to stuff the Hugo Balthus here. And I went on Twitter and I went, hmm, that's weird. Look at this. And then it's then my Twitter feed exploded and, and a friend was texting me going, you want no piece of this, bro? Do not get involved in the Hugo debate. <laughs> Don't get in there. Get out them Hugos. So, uh... Well, if you're unfamiliar, the Hugo Awards are one of, if not the most prestigious, or at least the most easily recognized of the science uh, fiction fantasy awards. Is that, do you think that's an acceptable way to explain them, Sam? No, I would, I would say that's very, that's very accurate. That's what we're most famous for. And so far, it's the only award in which we are willing to shed blood over. So well, and there, and it's an award that is voted on by. Uh, this is a, the interesting part to me. Yeah, by attending members of of Worldcon. Worldcon, yeah. right. right? So if you attend Worldcon, which is a bit, it's like a roving science fiction fantasy book show. Uh, yeah, it uh, it's uh you know it's a show where a lot of fans and a lot of authors, agents, uh, editors all gather together, and it moves around the world. Hence the name. World and con. the Hugo, oh, yes, it con. only makes sense. And uh, the Hugos are held there every year. Yeah. And whoever buys a membership, you can buy a membership and vote there, or you can buy a uh, supporting membership, which means you can't attend, but you can still vote. And you go there, and I, I'm sure there's other stuff that happens, but you also get drunk and yell at people. This is what what all sci-fi authors do. Which you know, this is this is what all conventions eventually begin and end. This in. sounds like the science fiction and fantasy version of the NCS, doesn't it, Brad? Yes. <laughs> you can yes, only yeah, vote I'm, if you're I'm a paid seeing... member. Yep. And once a year, you get together and get drunk and just old men just scream at each other. Well, but this is this has fans involved as well. I mean, anybody uh-huh. if anybody can attend Worldcon. I'm correct in that, right? Right. Yeah. How and much this, does this a is, supporting how much does a supporting membership cost? I believe it was forty dollars. I think it's up to sixty now though, isn't it? It could be. It could be. It, That's these, a supporting membership. What does just a membership cost? Around anywhere from like a hundred to two hundred dollars. Hmm. I mean, it's a ticket to the show, is a membership. Right. Yeah, you know, it's it's all access. Yeah, to yeah. Man, attend everything. So wow. what what the what the debate is over is uh, a, a group of authors, or maybe one individual author, I don't want to get too much into it, has basically said to their readership, um, you know, F these liberal literati, I believe are the words <laughs> they're using, let's all get the, let's all get a membership, you know, like a... Well, hold on, I think you're jumping, membership. I think you're jumping the gun. Am I? I think the story begins... This is really difficult. This is where the internet really screws you up because... Yeah, because you don't know where things start. Well, no, not even that, but just that since this isn't like a main... Isn't a major media news story, you only get the reports of people who have Nobody's skin in the game. Nobody's talking about it. Right. right. Nobody's talking about this, guys. <laughs> um, That's my go-to. So, 
you read a whole article and you realize so but what in my research uh into this yesterday on the on the ever accurate internet right right, i found two camps okay okay? you tell me how right or wrong i am on this sure i had the salon.com camp right aka the bleeding heart liberals right yeah yeah who uh who started this last year when they decided or a year before when they decided that uh there wasn't enough diverse representation of non-white non-male authors at the Hugos and they kind of quasi organized to say hey why don't we start being you know proactive about the Hugos and let's get some people recognized who are not the famous white Orson Scott Card crazy Mormon nutty authors that always win let's get some diversity and it's been a wonderful since then it's been a wonderful diverse amazing (laughs) Hugos I mean we're getting authors that would never have been considered then on the other side you have That that was sarcasm right no, I mean that's their opinion. Oh, right. well, they're wrong. But then on the other side, you have yeah. the Breitbart dot uh, com camp, mm-hmm. who said that, who is saying whose opinion is the Hugo should be about who writes the best and who makes the best quality amazing sci-fi. Doesn't matter what color they are. Why are we giving awards to people? Because they're a certain, they fit in a certain group. Why aren't we giving awards to people based on how awesome they are? This is all an organization of Tor Publishing and Tor.com, and we've had enough of it. And this year, we're going to beat them at their own game, and we're going to organize our own group. Um, I forgot to say the Breitbart.com is the is the uh, super conservative uh, camp. Mm-hmm. apparently and so uh and they're like enough of this minority it's same thing we're seeing in comics i'm tired of this crazy social justice warrior nutbag vocal minority trying to make everyone feel shitty about the authors they like when it's the best sci-fi and that should win the awards so why don't we organize our own fucking group and we'll call it mockingly sad puppies think about the children Right. <laughs> we don't like social justice warriors. And they're just they bring in this whole social justice warriors aspect into it that just murks up the whole fucking thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh and then the the nominations came out and they did a pretty good job. <laughs> they swept <laughs> the nominations. And so now the other group is calling foul because these tactics when used by the uh, conservatives by the opposing people. side, but well, not just the opposing side, Corey. The conservatives who hate brown people and gays use their own tactics for evil. <laughs> it's foul play now, and that's why people are getting death threats. No, I just jumped to that last part. Um, but yeah, so now what's happening is apparently there's an option known as the nuke the site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure option of the Hugos. <laughs> right. Which is where you vote for no award. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> because this... you, you can choose to say, 
I choose to give no award to this nominee. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's a uh, you know more or less ac- uh, accurate. Both sides are very angry at each other, well, and you know I I do not really have skin in this game. I'm not I'm not entirely interested in the Hugos as they stand because I'm much more concerned about dying in obscurity. Why the fuck and did we have you on the show, Sam? <laughs> because you asked. You need an you need an opinion, sir, and you need it now. I you know, I you know, my opinion <laughs> is that the Hugos are sort of like you're at your grandma's funeral <laughs> with your two strange cousins and your grandma left a taxidermized cat. And to you this seems pretty weird, but your cousins really want this cat. And so you you sort of think, well, should should I want this stuffed cat as well? There's something about the cat. Wait a minute. Yeah, <laughs> I love this analogy. Keep going. <laughs> so they start getting up, and you know they start whispering in your ears, like you you can't give the cat to the other guy. That, mm-hmm. I deserve this cat. <laughs> Grandma wanted me to have this cat, and the other one whispers, "No, he always gets the cat. You you got to give it to me. <laughs> I deserve this the cat." cat. And then you he's were got just an attic full of taxidermized. Yeah, he's, he's, this guy is swimming in cats. He's you can't so swing a cats. dead cat without hitting well a dead cat. And uh, you know this, it, it, it gets yeah. infectious because you start thinking, well, I, I need to have, I need to have a cat. I need to have a cat of my own. <laughs> and then you realize you're talking about a dead cat. <laughs> You're like it's like a weird game of diplomacy where they're like, you know, you got to help me get this cat away from Bill, and then, <laughs> yeah, and then, and then they're both waiting for you to support them, and you go, I want the cat, right? <laughs> the cat. Except, <laughs> you know, I was I was happy not having a cat, <laughs> a dead one to begin but with. Now like, you want it. Now you want the cat. I I don't gotta I, have that cat. You so kind of. this is really awesome because we the first time Angie and I bought a DVD player ever, right? We went to Best Buy, and we were Angie. Angie's really good about doing all this research, and she found the one that she wanted. And they only had one. It was a display unit, hmm. and they're like, "Well, we can sell you the display unit for like, you know, twenty bucks less." So we're sitting there staring at it, and I'm like, "What do you think?" She goes, "I don't know. It's the one we want, but it's a fucking display unit, and it's been sitting out, and who knows if it's got all parts." And I'm like. Yeah, I don't know either. I don't know if I want to get it. Some guy comes up and goes, is that a so-and-so? And Angie goes, it's ours. <laughs> <laughs> and we bought it. And we were just laughing the whole way home because we were like, I don't want this piece of shit. <laughs> Display it. And as soon as someone comes up and goes, oh, God, is that one of them? We're like, hey, we saw it first. Right. Yeah, that's 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 more or less a, a, an idea well like there are a, there are a lot of authors that are feeling sort of alienated from the whole process because we would rather not get death threats mm-hmm. and you know like there are there is a rumor that uh that death threats are flying from one side to the other and oh, then back gosh. again because this is the internet yeah mm-hmm. right and you know anything worth saying is worth saying with a lot of vulgarity and death threats. Yeah. Well, what's interesting though is the death threats, which would, which would, boy, it sounds like a fantasy novel all on its own, right? But, but what's interesting is that I doubt it's a death threat from like an author 
a tour books author to, you know, Orson Scott card. You know what I mean? Right. It's not like, you know, Sam, you're like, God damn you, Scott card. Right. <laughs> Hugo will be mine. Yeah, I have I have yet to hear of an author threatening another author. It's fans, right? Yeah. It's fans you know. getting mad at other fans. Well, and potentially not even real fans. Keep in mind that these are anybody can can sign up to be a supporting member. Right. I think I read somewhere that there are like ten thousand ish attendees and only two thousand of them vote. Sounds so about uh, you know, a very small percentage of the people are actually voting. And, and to put to put the cat analogy a little bit in perspective, I mean, there's something to be said for a Hugo Award. It is going to sell more books. Is it's, it? I, I don't know. I'm curious. I mean, it's, it's debatable as to how many more books it sure. will sell, but, uh, you know, in general, it's a well, bump, and the okay. Hugos probably provide the biggest bump. So let's bring it into comics perspective for, for us. I have not <laughs> found the same thing to be true for the Eisner or the Harveys. You don't think the Eisner provides a, a bump? It didn't me. Well, but you were you were doing an online comic. Oh, were you watching your traffic after the bump after the Eisner? Sure, I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching my sales of my image comic. Well, yeah, that's true. I think. Well, um, I just wanted to remind everyone that I won the Eisner. Oh, sure. <laughs> I think in the. Well, I think well in the. In the <laughs> I think it's it. in the same way that the Eisner is the one recognizable outside the comic industry award. The the Hugo is is the recognizable outside the sci-fi industry award. Does that make sense? Like if you walk into a bookstore, average person can look and oh the Hugo award. I've heard of that. They don't know what yeah. it is, but they've heard everyone, of it. Everyone everyone at least it's sort has of like an idea of what it might be. Right. It's it's like the ALA awards, the American Library Association. There's like right. 40 awards. Right. But you know what? What do people know? The Caldecott, and yeah. and what? Name another one. Like I dare anybody that's not a librarian to name another one. There's maybe one other one that people could name. What's the one on all the kids' books that's a golden seal? Uh, the Mayberry Award. The Mayberry. That's the other one go. that people could name. The Caldecott is the silver medal. The Mayberry is the gold medal. But they're not like any better or worse than any of the other awards that the ALA has. And there's a ton. So, right. it, but it's the recognizable outside the industry one, and the argument is that that, that with the Hugo Award being the recognizable one as an author, you wanna you wanna get that award, and as an industry, you want the people receiving that award to be uh, <coughs> the the ones that you want representing your industry, right? Right. Well, True. you know, in terms of sales, it doesn't hurt certainly, but uh, it has it has a variation on how much it does for you. Like some books have done extremely well with uh, Hugo recognition uh, and others it has provided barely a bump. Yeah. Nothing. Right. Right. So I, you know, at this point I, I don't even think sales bumps are an explanation for the bloodthirst going on around it. You think this is a prestige thing, an ego thing? It could be a prestige thing, and you know, some of the more dramatic people will say it's for the soul of sci-fi. Ah, and, come on. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I'm reciting what I've seen. This all seems very strange to me. I don't want a dead cat. But, uh, you know, some people will say this is this. We need to take a stand. We need to take I'm, the I'm seeing back. a lot of that. Yeah, there was an actual hashtag of called take the Hugos back. And I'm like, oh, oh, my goodness. 
Yeah. Yeah, because at the end of the day, it's really not about an award. It's not about sales. It's not about the soul of sci-fi. It's it's about this place we find ourselves at in the world where uh, the, the world is changing to such a degree that you've got a, a certain number of people who think, oh, my God, this is a really scary thing. I don't want any of it. And a certain number of people who think now is our time. Now is, you know, now this is a great time to start making uh, the changes that we've wanted to see in the world all along. And you've got those two sides fighting against each other and, it, and they fight over the darndest things. For example, in uh, Indiana, it's not really about whether a pizzeria is going to serve uh, pizza to a, a, at a gay wedding. It's not about the pizza. It's about this bigger issue uh, right. that has people uh, on both sides uh, at loggerheads with each other. That's that's pretty accurate. You know, they it's a battleground in which a larger conflict is taking place. Right. I went through it. <clears throat> a couple of us went through it um, after McLeod wrote his second book. Um, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. When he wrote... Um, uh, understanding? No, Understanding. Make, make No, that's a good one. Oh, Reinventing the, Comics. That's the third Reinventing one. Comics, yeah. When he wrote Reinventing Comics, he was everywhere. Just mm -hmm. everywhere. People were talking to him about... So web comics, so digital comics, like the future, is it real? And he's like, well, not really, maybe. <laughs> and there were five or six of us that were um, talking to each other going, why are they asking him? Yeah. Like we're sitting here making a living and no one would believe us. Right. And everyone's, you know, and meanwhile, McLeod is going to universities going, Will anyone ever be able to make a living on the web? Who knows? You know, and <clears throat> and we were seeing articles and, you know, I remember being really pissy uh, very publicly about who is who. Why are we letting this guy represent us? Why aren't we? We need to be vocal and say, no, this is the situation with digital comics, this is what people are doing. No one gives a shit about infinite canvases. Mm -hmm. You right. know, uh, you're talking to a formalist by his own definition who, you know, doesn't consider it a success unless you can choose which panel you go to next from an infinite number of panels and that makes a ton of money. Right. You know, like, why is we were, I mean, but we were passionately upset about it at the time but to, at the time it really felt like we were doing something here that was worthy of recognition and people were missing it and and not believing us and, and the one spokesman to the outside world was the guy saying something that you'd expect someone who was not in touch with the subject to say he yeah, that, that was yeah. that was the frustrating thing is is he all of a sudden became the spokesman for for uh, online comics, and 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 he 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 wasn't the saying the sorts of things that I would hope that people who were immersed in web comics would say. Worst the worst it ever got was when he and I exchanged emails, and mm -hmm. I told him that uh, I was going to every time that he said that micropayments were going to be the future. <laughs> I was going to be there to tell them this guy is fucking nuts. <laughs> Macro payments are what you want. And don't worry about it anyway. Here's how you make comics. And it's about, it's about connecting with an audience. It's not about 
micropayments. <laughs> and he said that he was, okay, he and his kind, he and, and the people that were, were, the mission he was on was he was the Wright brothers and everyone trying to invent the airplane. And they're on the hill testing out all their planes. And I'm in my dirigible above them telling them they're never going to fly. Hmm. Hmm. And I was like, I will fucking kill you. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> See, no, I was uh, imagining this conversation taking a different turn. I, 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 because all of a sudden I picture you saying, if I had a nickel for every time you go off about micropayments, I'd ha- hey, wait a minute. Maybe this is going to work. <laughs> oh, that's, that's smart. I wish I had been clever enough to say that. Um, but if I had a nickel for every time Scott McCloud said micropayments would work, micropayments would work. <laughs> yeah. mm. <laughs> God damn it, Brad, you're 10 years late on that. <laughs> I, hate, I hate when you outdo me on my own fucking joke. Uh, <laughs> I just, just refined it. That's the that's too elaborating. To semi, to semi come to the, I, I guess, defense of Scott McCloud. I mean, Patreon is working. It's not micropayments, bro. Well, a dollar is not a micropayment? No. He was we talking had... dimes and nickels and quarters, dude. Yeah, but how long ago was this? He was talking pennies. Yeah, inflation. It still it still is I, I Scott and I have had this conversation before. I still think that 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 it is, Patreon is as close to micropayments as we're gonna get. It is very close to micropayments. Hmm. It really is. You know, I that's like uh in other news today. <laughs> The, the head of Scott McCloud said, well, 2030 is here and micropayments exist. <laughs> Unfortunately, because of our new canine overlords, point is moot. <laughs> Inflation. He didn't make the prediction in the Carter administration. <laughs> um, that's, that's what WHIP actually stand, stood for. Gonna, also, I uh, want to say that. Web comics in production. Yeah. Also, I didn't appreciate the dirgeable comment because <laughs> going all the way back to that. First of all, I'm a heavy guy. <laughs> I get it. I'm a German. You know what I mean? Like, I really don't think that's where he was going with that. I don't know, man. That, that's a pretty raw subject. <laughs> yeah, it is. What, no, what's funny uh, is Sam, since, Sam, aren't you glad we invited you on to talk about uh, Scott McCloud? No, I this am, is, I mean, this is I, very I similar to what's, so much. This is very similar <laughs> to what's happening with the Hugos right now. And to to I'm angry about it all over again. And I tell you what, I'm going to pick a side on the Hugos, too. But no, what's <laughs> OK now? Hold on a second. What's what's interesting to me is that I know that you and McCloud have conversed since then. And it's no big deal. Well, it's no big deal. I mean, because that was so long ago. It's so long ago. I don't. Give a shit. And also, Lexapro. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, no, I, uh, he and I have talked since then. I mean, he's discussed the noble, uh, the noble failure of micropayments, and I think Patreon's pretty close. It's as close as you're going to get. It's as, probably as close as you're going to get. And, you know, um, <clears throat> I understand what he was trying to do, and, uh, I mean, when we've gone over the angry young Scott discussion a million times, I understand my motivations at the time. I'm a, 
I, I like me better now at 44 than I did when I was 24, for sure. <laughs> but, uh, um, well, I, I got a question for you, Sam. So 34, not great. Right. No, I'm uh, just kidding. <laughs> so uh, there's a, an article that I really like from 2006 by a guy named uh, Paul Graham, and he's one of the founders of Y Combinator. Um, right. he, he wrote an article called How to Do What You Love. Um, you know, we'll, we'll post links to it or something somewhere. But uh, in it, he, there's a section where he talks about uh, prestige and how it's, a, it's just a wrecking ball. Like it'll just destroy people. And, oh, yeah. and, you know, one of his things is like, if you, if you want to clear the path for you, uh, and, and, or, and, or if you're particularly ambitious, if you want to, um, make an ambitious person just go off the rails. And in this case, I'm thinking like ambitious sci-fi writers. If you want them to stop writing and start doing something else, just bait the hook with prestige and send them down wow. that road. Is this a scenario in which the, you know, the, the the bait is the Hugo and that's the prestige and people are chasing it. Are, I mean, how much time is being wasted with these writers that should be writing that are instead on forums talking about this award? I mean, with the, with the advantage of the internet, like you no longer have to choose between productivity and yelling at people. <laughs> like you, you can set aside time to work. And then once you're done, you can log on to Twitter and, just fire off a few angry uh, thoughts into the void. But, uh, I mean, that's also kind of exactly what's happening here. No one is talking about the actual books. We're all discussing the campaigns going into it. And, you know, just, uh, just some clarification. Yeah, this has been done before, but no one has ever really put, it, put together a slate that says, vote for me and all these other guys. And is that the case in this scenario? Yes, yeah. uh, the previous the, what's gone down previously is other authors have campaigned. Sure, have, but well, that's what actually, anybody does, right? When right, and they've actually award. come out and said, "Hey, vote for me," uh, and these are my works that are eligible, and you can vote for it. And you know, sometimes it's worked, sometimes it hasn't. Uh, the sad puppies have you know put together their own political party, and that's the first time that's happened. They put together a list of here, here right. are the sad puppy right. approved authors. Right. right. And, and, you know, it's uh, everyone's everyone's pretty angry about it, but everyone also acknowledges that nothing they're doing is technically illegal. You know, the, the there's some uh, squeaky rules there, but they're not violating any bylaws. Nothing's being destroyed. It's just they organized. Are these authors falling into the realm of a per, uh, particular political spectrum? Like, are these right wing, super conservative uh, uh, the sad, the sad puppies tend to lean more towards the right wing. Right. Yeah, libertarian and and conservative. Libertarian and conservative. Uh, it was organized by Larry Correa this year. Oh, the uh, Monster Hunter guy. Yeah, Monster Hunter. Okay. And you know, I've met Larry a few times. He's a very nice guy. I I don't agree with a lot of his politics, and uh, but you, know, he is a very conservative author, and a lot of the people on the sad puppies slate are also very conservative. And some of them are, you know, were just sort of adopted by the sad puppy slate and put up there. So there's and, some there's some people on this slate that are didn't campaign to be on the slate. They just uh, are on there. Yeah, they just wound up there. Uh, you know, the sad puppies say that they informed everyone 
and other people are, and some candidates are saying that they weren't informed. Well, that's extra shitty too, because if you're yeah. one of these people that made it on this list, and you're like, I don't want anything to do with. There, there are a few people that are, and you know, John Scalzi has a uh, blog up detailing the tricky situation that these guys are in. Scalzi mm-hmm. is old man's war, right? Scalzi is old man's war. Great most, book. most recently, lock in, and he's, you know, he's on this red list shirts. Or no? No, Scalzi is is most certainly not a sad puppy. No, um, yeah, no. But and he's you know, done. He, I mean, he's done his own campaigning over the years. I, I know he does. He does he, the same thing we do for like the Harveys. And yeah, stuff. exactly. Hey, if you, you can vote. Go out. Please say, consider hey, table vote. titans for the Harveys. Blah blah blah. But is that yes. campaigning or is that just informing people that look? My books. These are the books <clears> that came out this year. It's been a long year. There's been a lot to read. Here's it's what I published. Yeah, it's a uh, you know it's it's. It's it's getting into the realm of well, what even counts as campaign as campaigning. Uh, with the Oscars every year for your yeah. consideration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. John has been very much a uh, has always been a champion of the Hugos, and he has always put forth what he considers to be you know even even now he believes in the Hugos so much that he is not being quite as condemnatory as one might expect. Yeah, you know, he's he's accusing no one of foul play, and he's stepping up and saying that people need to vote for who they feel the need to vote for, sure. which is very admirable of him. Uh, well, you know, it's really interesting because the my introduction to the Hugo Awards, um, learning about the award and everything was through web comics, um, because a webcomic creator, Howard Taylor, who does a sci-fi comic called Schlock Mercenary, right? Um, he was asking for people in the webcomics community, if they were members of Worldcon, to vote for Schlock for um, graphic right. um, story. And I know that at one point, uh, Kellett, who has a sci-fi comic, was, was, was inquiring as to whether he should try to get it you know, his, his comic drive nominated and we were discussing it and stuff. And, you know, cause I have a fantasy comic now and I was talking to someone and I said, should I try to get, you know, should I try to put table tides up for the Hugo? And they go, well, you won't win cause you're not a Mormon. And I'm like, what? <laughs> oh yeah. The only when the Hugos like science fiction and fantasy is full of Mormons. And you, in, in order to win a Hugo, you got to kind of be with the church. And I was like, all right, whatever. I don't yeah. care. That's ridiculous. Yeah, but that was that was like that's what trickles down. That's the odd stuff that trickles down. But it, you know, <clears throat> one time um, I got invited to a science fiction con. Right. Um, it was one in Austin. I don't remember what it was called. Uh, uh, Cho and I got invited. Armadillo con. Armadillo con. Yes. Right. That's sort of their thing. And uh, it was the weirdest show <laughs> I have <laughs> ever been to. Um, first of all. Setting up as an exhibitor at at a science fiction con means you sit and do nothing for three days. <laughs> and the panels were um, – the way that Frank and I described it, it was like being at a family reunion where nobody likes each other. <laughs> Accurate. Yeah. Like it was the most <laughs> intense. We were there for win, lose, or draw, you know. Uh we were on a panel where Frank and I were like doing win, lose, or draw. And they were really excited because they're all authors and here we are artists. Right. Yeah. And so they put Frank on one and me on the other. And the one author turns to me and goes, between the two of you, who's a better artist? And I said, Frank. And he goes, well, great. 
And I said, no, 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 no. Look, <laughs> the problem with win, lose, or draw, okay, is that the word is cat. And Frank's going to start drawing a technically perfect cat. And I'm going right. to circle the dot at it, and one of you is going to go cat. Right. <laughs> That's how you win, win, lose, or draw. Right. But what would end up happening is it was like, okay, the word is, um, you know, uh, you know, armoire or something crazy. And I would draw a box, and so would go, box, uh, 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 house, uh, um, cheating bitch. We get it, Harold! You know, like, <laughs> it's like all their baggage was brought into, like, it's like, and afterwards I say to Frank, like, when you're with a group of people that just hate each other, like, iconography that's like, that time that you backstabbed me, you fucking... It was just the weirdest vibe from ArmadilloCon, and we skipped the cl- opening ceremony. Mm-hmm. And because huh. I was like, do we need to be there for the opening ceremony? And Frank's like, no, who gives a shit? So we went to lunch, and when we walked back into the hotel, you know, like when you, you're out too late and you come back and you walk in the house and the light comes on, your folks are there and they're like, oh, 1 a.m., thanks for coming home. And you're like, oh, fuck, we're caught. We walked in and the whole organizing committee was there waiting for us. What? Yes. The people that invited us out, the people that flew Frank out, were just sitting in the lobby pacing. Oh and we gosh. walk in and they pulled us aside into a room and said, you're a guest of honor and you weren't at the opening ceremony and you embarrassed the hell out of us. And oh, that's no. not going to happen again. You're going to here's your slate oh. of panels, and you're going to do all of these things because we flew you out here, Frank. Oh. And I said, and and we had Frank's like they have us doing win, lose, or draw at 10 p.m. <laughs> and I'm like, I didn't fly out here. They didn't do shit for me. I drove from Dallas. I'm not going to any of this shit. I'm going home. He's like, No, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was my. So I've always avoided. <laughs> And I just I feel for you, Sam, because it's a weird world. Well, like I talked about the alienation of the Hugos. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I I hang with a much younger crowd. Like my friends are all, you know, around forty-five to twenty-eight right now. And we're all sort of not we don't we don't have the generational blood feud. You know, there's there's we ha- we haven't sworn the oaths. It's like a Highlander of sci-fi authors. It kind of sounds like because there are grudges that have gone on for quite some time. Mm-hmm. You know, we are the uh, the market is changing wildly around us, and we are just sort of trying to keep up. You know, talking about uh, Patreon, there are some authors who are doing that, and this is like a bold new thing. No one has understood this. We are sort of busy trying to understand how to better sell books. And then you look at this supposedly very prestigious award and there are two sides and one of them says, well, you know, and they both say, you know, come with us or we're probably going to threaten you or sink your career or do something. Really? Wow. Like, well, all right. Admittedly, no one has really gone on to say, uh, has gone on to explicitly say join us or die. Mm-hmm. But there is a lot of talk about like if you vote sad puppies, you're a racist. If you vote uh, not sad puppies, then you're destroying the Hugos, et cetera, et cetera. A, a lot of it is just. That's the part that really freaks me out is 
It's not even about the art anymore. Yeah, so gross. Well, and you know, a lot of people are opposed to creating anti-sad puppy slates. You know, a lot of people who would ostensibly vote anti-sad puppy are opposed to making slates because they don't want this to become a straight-up political fist fight. So, but I mean, you can see why someone like me would be hesitant to embrace wholeheartedly this tradition of sci-fi if it meant I was going to get beaten with a with an oar somewhere in a hotel room. I'm just assuming that's how it would how it would go down. Yeah, like after <laughs> afterwards, I would be lured up to a hotel room with By promises of alcohol, and they would be they would be up there with an oar because. That would be symbolic of something. Science fiction enough. <laughs> science, it's science it's, fiction enough. It's fantasy enough. <laughs> and then, you know, I would just hear a voice from the shadows saying, Asimov says hello. <laughs> <laughs> and then they would beat me and I would be dumped in the elevator. Oh, my God. <laughs> and the doors, the doors would open and my friends would find me. <laughs> and just, Asimov says hello. <laughs> And they just sort of shake their heads. Oh, like, you, sh- you shouldn't have done it, man. <laughs> god damn it. <laughs> oh, god. That was the last thing I heard. Asimov says hello. Asimov everything says- went black. <laughs> and then they beat me with a scale model of the TARDIS or something. <laughs> so you can see why I might be reluctant to get <laughs> well, So here's the, here's the bigger question, okay? How prestigious can the Hugos be? If it's a popularity contest as opposed to award, if voting is open, but that's every to award, anyone, right? not necessarily, not necessarily. The Doug Wright awards are pointed um, differently. I think the Eisners are determined by a rotating com- annual committee. Yeah, as opposed to, um, <clears throat> yeah, I learned pretty early on in my career that if you wanted an award, your best shot in award was. The Ignats or the Harveys. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason why, as I was told, was because um, you can rally voting, your fans. And you get can them to vote. For well, them. no, you can't rally necessarily your fans. You can rally your colleagues, right? Um, because it is limited to voting professionally. But also, the voting pool is so small, you don't have to rally that many of your colleagues right. to get nominated, which is why every year at the Harveys for about mm, seven years running, there was a Donald Duck comic in <laughs> every category of the Harveys nominated. And it was because at the time um, – what's that guy's name? Geppy, who owns Diamond Comics Distributors. He had his own – a publishing branch called Gem Publishing. Oh, that's right. And so he, he was obsessed with Donald vote. Duck. Oh, absolutely. And he had, yeah, so he handed wow. pre-filled out ballots to every employee of Diamond Comics and everyone huh. just one day filled it out. And Donald Duck, Uncle Scrooge comics were nominated for every goddamn category. It became a joke at the Harveys where people were snickering unprompted because every <laughs> nomination was like, uh, best new title, uh, All-Star Superman by blah, 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 da, 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 and Scrooge McDuck. And everyone would giggle. Um, <clears throat> and of but, course, it would never win, right? I don't know that it, I ever heard it winning, no. Who, yeah. vo- who votes after it's nominated? After it's nominated, the Eisners, well, wait, no, I, anybody can vote on the Eisners. No. 
No. Well, after it's nom after the nomination. After it's nominated, it, yeah. it, Eisner's is juried for the nomination process, right. and then once you put the nominations up, anybody can vote. Anyone who works in comics. That's the Harveys. No. No. Uh. Uh. What? Both. Now I'm not sure. The Eisner's is anyone who works in comics. Believe me. Okay, you're you. you I I defer to your. Uh... The only reason is because it was a really that was the really big deal to me was that was that the only people that could vote were people in comics. So for to be to be actual to be nominated was great because this committee of five said, hey, you know, but to be voted the gen, you know, if someone had to pick me over other people. And it was it was the it was my peers. Nah, the the Eisners and the Harvey, you both have to be a pro. Uh, I I rescind. Uh, you're, I just checked it out. You're absolutely right. Yeah. <clears throat> now the Harveys is more open because they are very eager for the Harveys to be more widely recognized and accepted, mm -hmm. and they will. Um, if you have a like, if you have a decently populated webcomic, they'll consider you a pro. They're not. Right. They're not uh, um, astringent. Um, so, I mean, yeah, they will. Well, I, I, you got to hand it to the Eisners. I'm just looking at their site right now, and it says voting is open to, and this is where, you know, who, who may vote. Voting is open to comic book and graphic novel, webcomic creators. And, and they, those are slashes. So comic book slash graphic novel slash webcomic creators. So they actually come right out and mention webcomics right in their, uh, right. No, in their Paul, FAQ. McSpadden, Paul McSpadden, um, who runs the Harveys, uh, one of the years I emceed and I told him I was gonna make a blog post about, it. he's like, please remind everyone that we do acknowledge people who make comics online as professionals mm -hmm. and they can vote. No, Harvey's was way ahead of that. And it's yeah. good to see the Eisner's joining them. Um, Dustin Harbin, who is a cartoonist and worked for years at the Heroes Convention, he did a big blog post about the Doug Wright Awards and how uh, a, an award with a with a juried committee that gives an award out every year based on merit is much different than the Eisners, the Harveys, where even within the or the Hugos, where even within a group, it's more of a popularity contest. Wasn't that mm -hmm. what Gary Arndt said the other day when we were talking about this? Yeah, well, Gary was Gary was pointing out that it's a it's a popularity contest if it's open. It's an yeah, it's a it's contest if it's open, like the People's Choice Awards, where all you got to mm -hmm. do is buy a magazine. If it's closed, then it's an award. An award. Well, um, I guess what's frustrating to me is that. Ostensibly, the art is not important. Like, it, like the art is not even germane to the conversation anymore. No. Well, I, I think it's the way. the end of the of the real critic, right? Like, isn't that doesn't that tie in in some way to this? Well, but the argument over sad puppies and and the campaigns and you know the Breitbart's are saying this is this you know this is just sour grapes because Tor Publishing has been has been doing this for years clandestine and then you know the other group is like this is this is all about conservatives being pissed that you know uh, <laughs> other diverse groups are uh, to upturning the apple cart in the whole discussion the only thing that's not discussed is the art. You know, and the question right. is, you know, this is the this is the question I always have when this comes up, which is you have the established 
you know, patriarchy, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. uh, versus the um, liberal uh, fanatics, for lack of a better term, fighting over this. And the only thing that's not being considered is the art. And right. it's the art hurt in the process. Because certainly, I think the culture that's arising from the fights are a culture of keep your head down. <laughs> don't talk about it. Right. You know, stay out of it. Well, and Sam, I mean, that's essentially what you were just describing. You and your younger writer friends are all just kind of staying the hell out of the way. Well, yeah, because these are all, you know, when you're forced to choose a side and both sides have big names. And, and both sides I, suck. You don't want anything yeah, to do with Yeah, and both them. sides have suck. And either one of them could ostensibly make trouble for your career if they wanted to. Like, if they felt motivated enough, they could go, I, I don't know. Like, I don't want to sound shadowy or conspiracy or, anything. or paranoid, even though I'm insanely paranoid. <laughs> uh, but, they, you know, things could be difficult if someone wanted to make it difficult. Uh, I don't One, think it's I'll, not paranoid if they're really out to get you. And exactly. two, you exist in a world where ostensibly some guy that's got the ear of a publisher could say, we don't like this guy. He doesn't get to be published. And no one wants mm-hmm. to lose his book. Right. So, I mean, it, it's really not, uh, not too big of a choice for us. Like, if we can not partake in this award and avoid getting severely beaten, then we would probably do that. We, uh, we seek the path, the least amount of pain. I want to but, talk to you for a second about the difference in creating within the environment of having to work with a publisher and having to worry about these political things as opposed to what we do where we get to sidestep all of it. Yeah, right. you, we, we get to overstep the gatekeepers. Yeah, all that really matters to us are, are whether the, the there's an audience out there that likes it. I mean, I'm not beholden to anyone. It's one of the reasons why I feel like I've had so much uh, trouble with um, established um, syndicated cartoonists that I've grown up admiring, which is right. because I was able to kind of um, sidestep them. I mean, Pasta said it best when he was interviewed for the movie Stripped when he said – he did the impossible and got broke into the NBA. Now the stadium's crumbling and we're outside doing a pickup game and that's the new NBA. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I have the luxury of not having to worry about that kind of stuff. Although I probably should worry about it, but cause things change, but you know, all that really matters are whether or not in the morning people want to keep reading my stuff. Um, but for you, you have to actually navigate, you know, some some corporate politics. Uh, is that true or not? I mean, uh, you know, it's it's really not that different than what you do. In that, if there is an audience and you sell, publishers will put up with an awful lot. Hmm. And in fact, there are some famous names out there that have been uh, muttered that have are pretty abrasive, obnoxious personalities, but they sell like gangbusters, so everyone just sort of sort of sucks it up. The problem with that is that the minute you stop selling, then <laughs> every, all your sins come back to haunt you. It's over, Johnny. So I feel it's just <laughs> it's better 
I mean, I'm, I'm not really an aggressive person to begin with. There's no one I really despise. But I feel it's better to sort of... If you'd of like main- a list, I can... <laughs> <laughs> we can get you started down that road. Yeah, we're really if, good at that. If you remain, you know, cordial to people, should you one day stop selling, you will hopefully not find yourself in a pile of flaming shit. So is it possible to be an independent sci-fi author or, or is publishing still a big part of what you do? In other words, like, like Scott was saying, guys like he and I, we kind of went off and did this without right. the syndicates. Is it, and, and I asked this because years ago I went to a Philadelphia sci-fi convention and it, and it was very, very clear that what I was doing would not be acceptable for a sci-fi author. It just wouldn't. Without the publisher behind him or, or her, it would it would never fly. Is that still the case? Uh, I don't believe so. Uh, there's been a lot of debate over self-published authors for a while mm-hmm. back. But, you know, the debate only exists until someone starts making money at it, at which point the debate is over. And, and is there a very top-level uh, independent sci-fi author? Oh, yeah. Hugh yeah, Howie. There's a, there's a Hugh couple. Howie meets- Who's the Amazon guy that, that or gal that publishes... Uh, I don't even know the name of the series because I haven't read it, but they've written thousands of pages of this sci-fi series. And That's probably Hugh Howie. Maybe. Mm. He just puts maybe. It, he just throws it up on Amazon. Amazon's not like his publisher because Amazon does have a publishing deal. He's just right. putting it up on Amazon himself as like an e-book, and he's written 15 or 16 books, something ridiculous. Yeah, that might not be Hugh Howie then. Uh, but yeah, there are, there are plenty of like top-tier uh, self-published guys. And you're, you're you know, saying uh, top tier in terms of just pure financial, or you're saying top tier in terms of like uh, all the other crap? I guess there. Uh, I would say top tier in terms of financial. The issue there, is, and this is what makes it interesting, is a lot of authors who hit hit it big self publishing usually get offered pu- traditional publishing deals, and a lot of them take it. Mm-hmm. You know, even Hugh Howey has had a traditional publishing deal mm. uh, because. When you are doing, I mean, you guys know, you, you do everything. You do the publicity, you do the merchandising, you take, you are responsible for word of mouth until it picks up steam and keeps going. Sure. A lot of authors prefer to just write. And yeah, they don't, do, they don't want to have to deal with that. That's why you want a publisher to come in and take care of that stuff right, for you. Right, because, you know, the publisher will handle the, uh, the publicity and it makes a big difference. You know, a, a, an immense difference to have a big publisher say, no, this guy's legit rather than just you right. saying it. And, you know, self-publisher, self-publishing used to have a stigma that kind of lingers now and then. But a lot of authors are approaching a hybrid situation. Uh, my good friend Brian McClellan, all his main novels are published with my publisher, Orbit, and he publishes little novellas by himself on Amazon and on uh, Google Re- Google Store and so forth. How long, and it seems, it seems to be working really well for him. How long before you think publishers will change their contract to reflect that an author uh, cannot publish digitally? Uh, and we've already seen this happen in the comics industry where it used to be a comic publisher would just, you just got a contract and it was for publishing. It was for, for right. print book publishing. But now they're all including digital into that and and what's funny is the publishers that are including it and i've seen a lot of contracts from a lot of different companies they have no digital marketplace experience setup i mean they've got nothing built for this right 
but they're still including in their contracts that the creator cannot publish digital works, that they have the exclusive rights to publish their digital works. Right. Well, we are we are sort of seeing the beginnings, or we might be into the middle of that fight. I don't know if you guys were clued into the uh, the Amazon Hachette. Uh, oh yeah, we oh, talked yeah. about we it talked quite about a bit on the show. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think at this point, a lot of publishers are really starting to think about, you know revamping their digital uh their digital uh means of selling because they don't necessarily want to be beholden to amazon and you know so far we've all been able to play nicely but we're not quite sure how that'll end hmm. how do you so, as a younger generation of sci-fi author how do you feel about the the amazon you know Hachet and all the all the other publishers for that matter uh, because I think they got into it with Disney right after Amazon, and and now everybody else's contracts are coming up. Everybody's following right. suit, and we've seen uh, the price of eBooks increase slightly since the, right. since after the uh, since after the yeah. contract negotiations. Well, the price of eBooks does increase, but at the same time, it's such you know it's such a fluid pricing. Yeah, it changes that, constantly. That it changes constantly, and we change it for deals, and we change it for like one-time offers uh when city stained red came out my latest book it was sold for two dollars for about four months and was and that an amazon choice or was that a deal your publisher did with that amazon? was my publisher's choice oh interesting okay and uh it it worked out really well we had, we drummed up a lot of interest in that uh time period who is uh, and you're with orbits right orbit right yeah who are they owned by or are they Hachette. independent we are a Hachette. Uh, oh, interesting. So the people that were fighting this fight in the first place. Yeah, we were all kind of holding our breath for the, over that <laughs> one. <laughs> but like, it, it's, I, I mean, I know uh, um, for, our, for our listenership that you have a huge mega conglomerate publishers and then underneath them you have imprints, like smaller. We have, the, yeah, there's the big five. Right. And then there's their imprints. And then the big five pretty much own everything with the exception of a few, with a handful of independent publishers. More or less, yeah. I would not, I would not have expected Orbit, a, a subsidiary of of Hache, to to have to go after an aggressive sales campaign like that. Now, I've seen Amazon do the reverse. When I was at Oni and, and uh, we were publishing Scott Pilgrim, they um, were selling some of the Scott Pilgrim books for cheaper than what we were selling them to Amazon. They were taking a dive on right. the, on those titles, so. It is not uncommon for Amazon to do that, but for a publisher to initiate that is really unusual. And to hear that it's coming from a subsidiary of the company that had a months-long fight with Amazon over the cost of books. Um, I mean, is it are they are they a younger imprint? Is this something where it's like they're they're more in touch with their readership? Uh, I think it's just sort of the the overall nature of the digital marketplace right now, uh, people sort of will, it's sort of like the, well, it costs $2, so I might as well check it out philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, only a couple bucks. Why not? Right. Yeah. And a, a very weird and interesting thing about books. And I don't know if this translates to comics is that people who buy, uh, who will buy it digitally will oftentimes buy it print as well. Oh, we, I mean, we absolutely see that in yeah, the comics. Too. Yeah, they want that. They want that physical copy. They yeah, want absolutely. That, yeah, that trophy. And we're putting out the web comics for free, and then pe expecting people to buy the books. That we're monetizing after. 
Right. I, I just bought my dad because I, I know my dad likes the same kind of – he's really into the Jack Reacher novels and right. he's into Jesse Stone. And I said, Dad, you'd love these Bosch novels. They're so pulpy and goofy. And I bought him uh, the book because um, he's, not, he's not on a Kindle yet. And I don't want him reading on his iPad. It's going to wreck his eyes. But uh, I had a chance to buy the, the soft cover or the hard cover. And I sent him the hard cover because I wanted him to have the nice book. Yes. Yeah. And it's it's still there's still I thought to myself, man, I want I really like this book. I want the hardcover. Yeah. There's something about it still. Yeah. Well, there's something about it. It's it's uh you know, I interviewed John Scalzi a while back and I polled the audience as to how many had bought uh print and how many had bought ebook and and how many had bought both. And out of the whole thing, the people who had bought both were the biggest part of that audience so interesting that is interesting it is really interesting but i think it's a it's sort of part of i don't i would be really interested to see if that translates well to other genres because with uh with fantasy and sci-fi that's not too surprising we are all nerds yeah we we like collecting stuff Uh, so uh real quick i don't know why i just interrupted you i feel terrible now no worries Uh, no worries let's okay so You've you've uh, you've met this young author, right? She's just written her first book, right? And uh, and uh, can I be first. her? Huh? Oh, I thought we were role playing. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I said she's just written her first book. All right. And despite the fact that I know a lot of authors don't, let's say she's a friend, so you've read it, right? And she's got something here. You think it's really good? It's a it's a fantasy book. It's really good. Yeah. This is first time author, right? Okay, now I know how I would advise a first-time cartoonist based on my own biases and all that kind of stuff. What would you but, – but breaking into having a novel published is completely different. Right. Um, <clears throat> to me, it just seems like a terrifying prospect. But, but you think she's got something great here. So what's, what's her first step? What's your advice? Uh Well, there's a lot of ways to go ar- around it. And uh, my way – was I got introduced to my agent. My agent took my book, and then he sold the book to the publisher. So how how vital is an agent when you're doing novels as opposed to comics or something like that? It's not 100% necessary. I would say it is definitely a huge advantage. Okay. Because querying publishers can be, they get tons and tons of unsolicited stuff. Right. Well, and these agents have relationships with these publishers right. and like yep. personal relationships. So if an agent walks into a publisher and says, hey, I've got this guy, Sam, and he's got this book and it's it's exactly what you, the publisher, because remember, right. the publisher ultimately makes the decision on what to publish. It's what you like. It's what you're into. It, it's yeah. your brand. That's that's one of the big advantages is that once you give it to the agent, he knows where to send it. You know, he's he can tell which uh, which publishers are going to be most interested in that. And he's got a relationship with those publishers. So it's sort of like being vouched for, you know, it's it's him saying, no, this guy's cool. You're going to like him. Mm-hmm. And it's it's an immense help. It's not 100 percent necessary. In fact, uh, you know, Scott Lynch, one of the uh, one of the very uh, best fantasy authors out there, does not have a traditional agent model. Hmm. Yeah. He he went straight to publishers. He actually got picked out of an online form, I believe. 
Really? Yeah. So like well, part of a, like part of a contest or something? No, I, I think he just posted a story he was working on. God. And, you know, he 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 might correct me later, but the, uh, the he posted awesome. and yeah, and an editor was looking at it and he's like, "Hey, I really like this. Send me the rest." I mean that hmm. and that ties right into the heart of the show, right? Is like this right. new media and technology is just changing everything about art and and the business of art and the way that we do this stuff. Yeah, and you know, a lot of people. Are you know just to tie this back into the whole conversation about paranoid old guys? Uh, hmm. A lot of people are very leery of that, but I think it's it's definitely great. That was that was my question because with so much of the new media stuff, um, animation, making web series, making TV shows, you can just put it on the web and right. really succeed. But I always felt that like. With two areas, I feel like, um, even with music, you know, but right. I always felt like with books, um, that it was different. People and, have been trying, though. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I feel like with a comic strip, you can put it out there, and if it's not a hit, you can tell pretty quick. Yeah. And you have spent, like, a day on it. So if it flops, it's like, all right, we'll move on to the next one. If you put out a book and it flops, you're like, oh, well, that's cool. That's a year of my life. <laughs> Gone. <laughs> Gone. Gone. You know, that, di- that didn't do too well. Yeah. Uh, so it, it can be more, you know, like authors that use Patreon pages. I, I'm very pl- thrilled with them, but I, and I've thought about it, but I could not justify that. I don't create things how at does a quick it, enough rate. Yeah, to how justify. does it work? Are they letting people read their chapters as they finish them? I don't know. A number of them offer different things. Uh, my friend Brian McClellan offers uh, industry essays huh. and that hmm. you know on uh, how to do conventions, on how to hire uh, editors, et cetera, et cetera. That's and people seem to enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. But that's a lot of you know business people. But Brian has a real head for business. I don't. So I I have no idea what I would put on for a Patreon. So uh, oh, I only ahead. have uh, not that this signals the end of the interview, but I only have one more question that I wanted to ask. Okay. Um, and I uh, one of my first comic book conventions, I got to meet at the time my favorite artist, John Romita Jr. Right. Um, and it was a very small room, and I knew I was going to get my question asked, and I was just nervous. I mean, I was <laughs> shaking. And it, he actually made a joke because I stumbled getting the question out. Right. Uh, but my question was. How great was it get breaking into the business because your dad was John Ramita? Right. And his response was, it was shit. It was <laughs> terrible. <laughs> because here he was, this kid in New York, showing up at the bullpen, and they were like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> you think just because your dad is John Ramita Sr., you're going you're gonna to get – you're going to break into comics because your dad's name? No. He said he had to pay twice as many dues. He had to work twice as hard to prove that he was good and worthy of, you know, being at Marvel. Right. Um, because he was the son of uh, a very famous comic book. He said he, he, um, he spent a lot of time erasing pencils and correcting uh, a lot of whiteout on right. uh, correcting inks. Much longer than anyone normally would have in the bullpen. Hmm. So my question for you is, knowing that you come from a family of where you have an author, a successful author in your family, did you find that 
that made it harder for you uh or did it not matter at all uh it only mattered to me kind of uh like in a bullpen i can see how it would work differently because that's a cooperative effort but sure books are a solo endeavor like at no point was some guy walking by my office door saying oh what you, you think you're, you're you're tough shit because of your lineage you know if someone if someone had done that <laughs> I would have said, well, what, what are you doing in my house? <laughs> uh, Asimov says hello. <laughs> Asimov says hello. Going talking shit about the Hugos? Uh, <laughs> so that is that never happened. The worst thing that ever happened to me, uh, well, two worst things. One is one author who shall remain nameless uh, once insinuated, actually straight out accused me of only being where I was because of who my mom was. And, you know, that was shitty. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, it was more shitty that someone would feel the need to say that rather than the actual situation. The other thing that happened is a reviewer once said, oh, I went into this book thinking he would be like his mom, but he wasn't. I'm like, well... (laughs) <laughs> what a surprise. Wow, yeah, really? Someone actually people. said that? Shocking. Yeah, I just, I, I just sort of shrugged because I can't do anything with that review. It doesn't help me in any way. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, the only way it's affected me is, like, every, amongst common wisdom in the industry, everyone says don't compare yourself with your peers because everyone's career is different. Oh, yeah. And that's, that's absolutely true. We all grow differently. And indeed, someone's success usually translates to more success for us all because that's validation of the genre and that's validation of – and that sort of boosts an in interest overall. There's no such thing as a reader that reads only one book. So if my friend Brian succeeds and people can say, oh, I really like Brian McClellan. What else is sort of like him? He can say, well, you can check out Sam Sykes. That works great. So we all should not compare ourselves to our peers, but we do it anyways. And my closest point of reference is a number one bestseller. Yeah, it's kind of rough. <laughs> so that that is a bit that is a bit intimidating. Daunting. Yeah, but you know, uh, it it takes a very long time to get established, and it took a long time for her to get where she was. And I had a five year head start, so I'm I'm doing all right. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because my introduction to your mom's books was through my wife. Right. And I said, oh, I'll, I've never heard of this book. And she goes, God, it's 20, 20 years old. <laughs> and I said, yeah, that's what it takes. Yep. Right? Right. Doesn't it always seem like that with it any, does, with any work like, of art? Yeah, but that's like no one outside of people who create art get that. It's right. really weird, Right. Um, my first introduction to the concept was, uh, I used to listen to Bendis talk and Bendis would say he was an overnight 10 year success mm-hmm. and I never understood what, what it meant, but it does, you know, it takes a while and, and Sam, you're absolutely right because I think what a lot of people do is you end up comparing your failures to everyone else's highlight reel exactly. and People are four-dimensional creatures, so you're comparing your first year with someone's 10th, and you're just – it's going to destroy you. Oh, totally. Um, The first time I got that advice was from John Kowalik. Um, John helped me break into self-publishing with comics, and he let me publish PVP as a Dorkstorm Press comic. 
And when my first numbers came in for my first self-published comic, it was like 1800. And he was like, oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. I'm like, mm. is, is it good? Yeah. He's like, you me? That's great. And I go, well, what does your comic sell? And he goes, don't do that. No. Don't do that. <laughs> don't go down that road. Don't go down that road. Don't worry about it. And yeah. I know you can look it up and I know you probably will. But you just can't compare my fifth year to your first, and you just – you couldn't compare my first year to your first. There were different times. Things were selling differently. Um, you know, you just don't – you'll drive yourself nuts. And and it's funny that you said it, but it's true. We always do. We always drive ourselves nuts. I um, think I think an amazing and necessary creative instinct is just to be able to shut off sort of everything but the actual work, like to just – be able to say, all right, this all bothers me, but I honestly cannot afford to think about it right now because I have deadlines to keep. Yeah. And that's what I do. Right. And, you know, and and another interesting point about, you know, having someone else in the family that, 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 um, does what you do is that I know growing up among my friends that wanted to be cartoonists, I was the lucky one. Right. Because my parents, despite having no interest in art in that endeavor. My dad is a math guy. Right. They always were supportive. They never thought it was crazy that I wanted to be a cartoonist. Now, they always wanted me to have a plan B. Right. Now, arguments my now, father. What is that about parents wanting you to have a plan B? Because you. Because you, they're you get parents. Scared. You get scared. That's ridiculous. Look, and I would always right. say to my dad, the best way to need a plan B is to have one. <laughs> and, and it's like, dad, I'm jumping without a shoot. It's oh I've already jumped. Like that was the point I was trying to get across to my dad. Right. Like, I understand you want me to wear a parachute, but you don't have to, you have to understand I've already left the plane, but doesn't that feel uh, like, and I'm going to hit the pool. Don't worry. Well, here, uh, here's a question for all of you creative types. Uh, not, not that I'm not a creative type, but, but this idea that if you dive in sort of, you know, head first into these things, you're more likely to succeed. I find, I, mm-hmm. I find that the people that have solid plan B's tend to go to the plan B. Everyone I've ever known in art that has like, man, that's a good plan B. Like you're ready to go. If this doesn't work out, always end up at plan B always without fail. It's just, it, it goes back to what, when I was 15 and I had mono and I overheard my dad asking my neighbor who was an illustrator, my son wants to be a cartoonist. How crazy is that? You know, how realistic is it? And he said, oh, the guys that end up doing that for a living are the ones that are too stupid to realize it's impossible. <laughs> At the time, I thought I was – I cried. I was, I was so upset. But I get it now. I mean, right. yeah, I mean that is one way to success. But there's also a sane way to it. Mm-hmm. And every time a cartoonist, an aspiring cartoonist tells me – I was really inspired by you, and I just quit my day job, and I'm going to make a comic. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Oh, why did you do that? <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? I didn't do that. That's not how I did it. Right. You know, my wife had to convince me to quit, and I was making more money at cartooning than my day job, and I still didn't want to quit. I was mm. still scared to quit. So I don't know. It, it, uh, plan Bs are uh, – I can understand why parents want to give people plan Bs. Right. That was but uh, since, so like I, you, oh, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Brad. No, I, when I when I when I announced I was leaving my day job, uh, Wizard World Philadelphia was was just around the corner, and Phil Folio had come out. So we went out to dinner that night, and that was like his number one. I said, okay, I'm going into this thing. I'm going to be doing just you know the cartooning for uh, you know my income. What's your biggest piece of advice? And that was the one thing he said: is 
don't spend any time on a plan B. Just do this thing. Because as soon as you've got a plan B, you're going to use it. Huh. Hmm. From, a, from a parent standpoint, though, consider the viewpoint of your father. He has seen you fall on your face through your entire life. The first step you took, you fell on your face. The first time you got on a bike, you fell on your face. He's, he might, I, know, I, I don't know about you, but my father has seen all of my failures. So when I come up and say, I'm going to be a cartoonist, of course the first thing out of his mouth is have a plan B. Because he's done nothing but see me fall on my face. Uh, mm. uh, I don't know. My son's only getting one plan. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> well, don't worry. Uncle Scott will have plan Bs through F for him. <laughs> um, so did, would, did, did you did you, uh, did you you have parents that were very supportive of your one oh, yeah. year writer? That's oh, yeah. Song. No, and they, they are still extremely supportive. Like That's great. Beyond supportive. Like, they know it takes a very long time. And, you know, my mom definitely clued me in with some, with some big, just sort of lifestyle tips. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, what was her best piece of advice? Right. Every day. Mm-hmm. Like this is, this God, is how where many times have we heard that? Not just well, from writers, but from anybody. Just do it every day. Draw every day. Write every day. Yep. Well, my, my mom's background is in zoology. She is a scientist by trade what? and it is just scientifically impossible to do something over and over and over and not get better at it. <gasps> where have you heard that before, Scott? Brad it's, Geiger. Where have you heard that before? I, I, <laughs> I, it just seems logical to me. And so this is, this is why <laughs> I just do it a lot. Sam just became my favorite guest. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, he's he's going to be impossible. <laughs> But I mean, it's true. Uh, no, I, I, Sam, I agree with you. We all it's agree true. with you, Sam. Right. It, and, and, now, and now Scott must agree, too. I don't necessarily agree. I've seen people work really hard every day, and they do not get hit. No, but better. they're not working hard. They're not. They're no, not, I, I gotcha. I gotcha. They're just doing it. They're not trying to get better. I understand. Well, and, you know, I, I've talked to a few people who are like, well, I, I just don't seem to be getting anywhere. And I ask them, what's your, uh, what's your process? And they say, well, you know, I... I wait until the moment strikes me, and when something's working, I go with it. I'm like, well, no, you you can't do that. It's you know, to to be totally crude, creativity it can oftentimes be a lot like being constipated. Mm-hmm. It is great when things are flowing, but sometimes you just have to sit down and force something out, and hope it doesn't hurt too much. <laughs> You, <laughs> Sam, killing me. Sam, would you say there is such a thing as writer's block? I, hmm, I like not as we know it. Like, there's no. God damn it! I love I'm Sam. Out. I love Sam. I, Brad and I, Brad and I are over the moon about this. this. Give you a best. big hug. <laughs> but I'm gonna well, do it. Well, I mean, there's, there's, there's no mystical force that says no. You can't write tonight. There's just sort of a a way to tackle a thing and it's not always obvious. Like there, there are moments when I will see a plot and realize it's not going to work and I'll try to wait, make my way through it. And if it doesn't work, then I will back off and I'll go do something else for a while. You know, Hitchcock did this a lot. Whenever things weren't coming, he would go do something else and your subconscious mind works 
much faster than your conscious mind does, so it'll figure it out sooner. But yeah. if that doesn't happen, then I just sort of power through it because I've got to keep going. I think we talked about the subconscious mind one time on the show, but I, I want to bring it up again and ask you about this, Sam, because sure. I, I'm a believer. I tend to get a lot of things done in three places. Uh, right. You know, on the toilet, in the shower, and on a plane. Right. And I, I think the reason why, and I'm try, I've, been, I've tried to find data on this. I can't find any. I think that when my mind is bored, my subconscious mm. mind can start running errands, right? And I feel like right. today, because we have this constant distraction in front of us in the form of some sort of digital device, usually a phone or, you know, 3DS or Vita or whatever, some kind of thing is in front of us occupying our, our mind, both conscious and subconscious, on, on some level, we're not having the kind of breakthroughs that we would have in you know a Hitchcock scenario where it was like, well, I can't figure this out, so I'm going to go play ping pong for a while, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or I'm just going to go sit in a corner, and then right. it's going to come to me. Do you find that to be true? Like when you are taking a break from something, if you go play a video game, for instance, or actively participate in in you know an online discussion on Twitter or whatever, do you have trouble getting to the breakthrough, or does it does uh, it really matter? When I'm playing a video game, it actually helps because oh, that is in, that is engaging a uh, different part of my brain. Uh, for example, I was just busy. I was just stuck on some plot point, and I couldn't get through it. So I decided, screw this. I'm going to go play Bloodborne for a while. <laughs> yeah, you were. We all. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Bloodborne. You know. If you're listening to the podcast, you probably know it's just a completely savage game that sort of demands total focus. But what I took from that is that all this conscious focus was on the game, leaving my subconscious free to just sort of think of things. And it it hit me very quickly. And, you know, possibly because I, I also have this weird relationship with video games where if, if I just get really frustrated and rage quit, then I really feel this need to go do something productive because I've got all this built up energy <laughs> that up I was energy. that I was going to use on this boss, but it didn't work because mm-hmm. it's bloodborne and it hates me. So I have to go work it out. <laughs> but uh you know video games will engage a different uh a different set of your uh of your of your brain's muscles. And as long as you're stretching those, then your subconscious mind is relaxing and it's just sort of working things out while you're not thinking of them. So your Twitter is different because I think Twitter activates the same sort of muscles I use for writing. Mm -hmm. So they're not really getting a rest there. That kind of creative level. Yeah, it's like I'm still tuned in and I'm still taking all that productivity I'm just saying pointless shit on the internet are there some video games that work better for you than others it's very it's very uh, weird but mostly action games work really well like God of War any game that is very movement and mechanical oriented so RPG. like a thir- third person action yeah hit or you know a certain a f- order. or a first person shooter where it's all about you know moving carefully and aiming uh, RPGs tend to not work great because you know you're still actively engaged creatively, and you're spending a lot of that time uh, digesting a story, which is in itself a creative act. So that's an interesting way to put that, right? That like reading reading a book is a creative act in the same way as it is, but as you know it, a book. it can also work to your advantage 
because somehow that creativity can sometimes boil over. And you know, I've often had immense uh, productivity after reading someone else's book. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's just generally good advice that to be a good writer, you should be a good reader. You know, at least Zach Wienersmith says that. Yeah, yeah, a lot. At least in uh, novels, and I think the reason for that is that you sort of begin to di- as you're digesting everything creatively, your subconscious is still sort of processing the finer details there. So while your conscious mind is acknowledging this dude went from point A to point B, your subconscious is processing the sentence structure and the prose and. Uh, you know, exactly what kind of beats he used in that. And it's sort of becoming inspired. And then that goes back to your conscious mind. I'm talking like this is actual science, but it is not. It is, <laughs> it, it is the rantings of, of, of a crazed madman. No, but I, I, I'll tell you this. Everything that you're saying sounds very familiar. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the subconscious mind. Right. I, 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 and I agree. Uh, I, I get a lot of writing done on the plane and I get a lot of writing done if I let myself kind of go into that half area between sleep and being awake. Right. The only problem there is that some, sometimes you fall asleep. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's... you really can relax yourself so, so you're in that halfway dream state. Uh, I, I've written some some stuff that I'm pretty proud of doing that. I, th- I think that's totally accurate. Uh, I I got really inspired to write a a big section of my second book while I was sick with a fever. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of shuffling around my house Mm. uh, in my bathrobe, mumbling to myself. And to to anyone looking in, it would have been completely disturbing. (laughs) But to me, it was was magnificent. I was finally figuring things out. (laughs) And I was deranged with a fever. Yeah. Just sort of talking to myself. And the only pull from this episode is going to be Sam Sykes says, you know, get yourself really sick and have fever <laughs> dreams in order to write your books. Well, I mean, it's there's a long and proud tradition of authors making themselves uh, inebriated or, Ill other, or otherwise intoxicated <laughs> and then writing. The problem with that is you don't tend to get famous until after you're dead because of that. Yeah. So that that does I don't advise that. I'm not a, I'm not big on that either. Yeah. Sam, I know you've got to uh, take off here soon for a meeting, but we have five questions that we like to ask our guests. Absolutely. And I would like to ask you those questions. Please do. Uh, question the first: Please define for us success. Success is being able to do what you love without too many worries. Like worry without worries that do not directly link to what you're doing. Has anybody so, uh, for Brad and Scott? Time has I've anybody heard anxiety brought up? Has anybody ever place. not answered that question almost no. the exact same way? It's always the same thing. It's always yeah. the same answer to do what you love without without having to worry, worry about the other stuff. Yep. Right. Uh, so well, interesting. I mean. You know, there's 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 ways to define it. If you have a statue made of yourself, writing, <laughs> writing like in a Oxford t- Park, I yeah, I would have a hard time denying someone success if they had a statue of themselves 
riding a T-Rex and wielding a chainsaw. I would say, yeah. What if they had a statue of like a long cylindrical... Uh, what are they called? Uh, Hugo Awards. What if they had one of those? Nah, <laughs> I, I, would, I would be worried. I'd be like, wow, you, you really like this award. Taxidermied cat, though? They really like taxidermied cats. <laughs> you don't think that's success? If I, if I start an award, we will give away taxidermized cats. <laughs> yeah, start it. Should. Start that award. I will. I will. We'll call it the, the, the Morbids. Yeah. The morbids. The, morbids. <laughs> the morbids. And it's a non-horror award. It's like for children's literature or something. Yeah. Uh-huh. The, the, the YA segment will get like a stuffed toad or something. It'll just it'll just be variations on stuffed animals. <laughs> and and you mean stuffed like actual like animals taxider- that are like stuffed, taxidermized. Like, taxidermized like a taxidermized toad will be YA. Uh, uh-huh. Best novel will get a taxidermized cat. <laughs> Lifetime achievement will get you like a bear or something. Maybe a horse is some large animal. Right. Jeez, the morbids. <laughs> the morbids. Uh, so or question- the, morbi- the morbies, if you the want. Morbies. <laughs> morbies. Uh, second question. Uh, tell us about your greatest failure. Huh. Let me think. I like creatively or because I, I want it's your, it's your question friend you can answer it how you choose uh, I once really had this huge crush on this girl in high school and she was a career driven woman in high school like as <laughs> career driven as you could be <laughs> and I was just completely infatuated with her mm-hmm. and just like pinned all my hopes to her and she went and made out with another dude Uh-oh. and I still pined after her and that's my biggest failure is I wasted so much emotion and time into a woman who was not interested in me. Yeah, that was my, I don't want to sound like, like I'm angry about being put in the friend zone. Like that was my problem. I mm-hmm. did not, I did not turn that energy into more productive uses. I just sort of sat there and seethed for a while. It's interesting is there to me. Any, Go ahead. Is there, any, is there anything as painful as unrequited love? Not so much, but for me it was the, the pain, like, you know, she was a girl I liked in high school. Mm-hmm. Obviously, obviously it was not love. It was the fact that I really liked getting kissed <laughs> what? I, I was i was not happy to see that go what I, <laughs> but i mean the the, the the big problem was that i wasted so much time and, and that's, effort. Yeah. see that's what's interesting to me is most people that would tell a story like that their their failure is that oh, i'm i'm upset that i didn't take the leap or that i didn't whatever and your failure is what a waste of time. Like yeah, I'm that's a good point. The failure is that I spent so much time pining over someone that was clearly not interested in me. And it, you know, hindsight being 2020, 20, it's like clearly you can look back and go, man, what a waste. What it just what a waste right. of valuable and, well, time. Well, you know, you know, failure will teach you something, but then there are failures that just don't teach you anything. And except that you were young and stupid. <laughs> well, that's that, like, that was, that's what, the teaching though. Well, yeah, and you know, like I, I started writing when I was like seventeen, so I've been tuned into sort of how keenly I waste my time for a while now, and yeah, that just that just irritated the hell out of me. Uh, 
What's your process? Uh, I sit in the dark and I hunch over my computer and I write a few sentences and then I pause and I think, am I going to die in obscurity? And then eventually I decide, no, probably not. And then I keep going. (laughs) I think you should listen to our last episode about Lexapro. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of a nervous writer. Like I can only go in very short bursts. So I start work at midnight and I will write a few, I will write a few uh, sentences and then I'll get up and I'll move around for a while and then I'll go back and I'll start working. And I can only go until like the mood of a scene is spent and then I have to stop and sort of recalibrate and figure out what the next, uh, Emotion will be. That's like, like I'm, a I'm, really time-consuming process. Does it take you a long work, time to write something, or or is, does this happen pretty quickly? It depends. Like, uh, I'm a very slow writer in that it, but I I choose everything with such deliberation that I usually only need to do one draft. Like, I have friends who will finish their first draft in like three weeks. But then they spend the rest of the year uh, <laughs> rewriting like, it yeah. and retweaking it. And I, I really don't do that. Like, I like to get it down right the first time. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, what's your trick? My trick? Uh, hmm. My trick is making people angry and still making them read what I do. Doing wow. It's, it's a GRR Martin trick, right? I mean, I, I'm, I'm, there's a very big call right now for fiction that makes people feel safe and comfortable. And I can totally understand the reason for that. Like I understand a lot of people who do not typically feel safe and comfortable in their lives might want would want that in their fiction in the, in the media they consume but i i need i i need to hurt people like that's the only <laughs> I, I i i kind of feel like it doesn't count if it didn't hurt hmm? and i like i like my fiction to really channel that raw mo- this is why i write people who are very broken and damaged and sort of have to pick themselves up and keep going because you, you wrote a blog post about angering readers, right? Yeah, I did. And I, you know, I'm, I, it's, it might not be the most soluble thing because a lot of people are selling very well, doing very, uh, comfortable, uh, tension free safety porn. But, uh, <laughs> I, I, I feel, I feel like you can't, like you can't really count on those readers to be around when you really want them, like they will, they will be excited. Right. Yeah. They'll be like, Oh wow. Yay. I'm comforted, but they will not need to keep reading. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So in that way, you know, I sort of emotionally abuse people, but and make them dependent on me. And then they, so that that is my trick. (laughs) That's why you're, that's why you had the one book for two bucks. I mean, the first one's practically free. Exactly. Oh God. It became more insidious now. (laughs) (laughs) 
so the last question is, uh, give our listeners one piece of advice. One piece of advice would be to just keep doing it over and over. If you are faced with a brick wall, run headfirst into it. <laughs> and then if you break your neck, then, well, do it again. <laughs> Eventually the wall will fall down or sometimes you can just go around it. Right every so that's, day. I've, I've, I've always said I don't trust the advice of successful people because I don't think they really want company. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Wow. So, don't tell our listeners that. No one will listen to this. To our show. <laughs> I mean, I, I certainly want everyone to, to be as successful as they want to be. But in, in my opinion, all right, a better piece of advice would be don't be afraid if some days the process is like slamming your head into a brick wall. Just keep doing it. Just keep doing it until one of you dies. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, got, this got bleak. <laughs> started with the no, Morbius. It's, it's started really with not. the Morbius Awards and then it kind of went downhill from there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like it's, it started off as a very productive discussion <laughs> of... <laughs> How the awards are destroying us, but uh, so that's our five questions. But I, I just thought of one other question um, in regards to these awards. Coming back to the beginning of the show, sure thing. Is it time to do away with awards? I think it just is entirely like no, just nothing. I mean, originally awards are for to help inform a public. You know, it was the same reason why we had critics originally in 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 right. sort of newspapers and that kind of thing. They would give you and now i feel like critics mostly just give you a synopsis of what happens in the thing so you can decide whether or not you like it as right. opposed to the days of siskel and ebert where they were like actually reviewing something and having a, a discourse about whether or not it was good now we're just kind of in the realm of critics just kind of tell us what happened in the thing so are, are yeah. the awards the last bastion of letting us know if it's something we'll like it's it's it i think awards are ultimately pretty harmless like even with awards and critics, the most surefire way to sell a book was your friend. Like even if uh, even if a critic said, "Oh, this book is wonderful," and an award and it won like twelve awards, if your friend said, "Oh, god, it's shit," most people <laughs> will listen to their yeah. Most people will listen to their friends and simply not read that. Uh, and you know that it's sort of easier for word of mouth to spread. But I mean, awards are also kind of a very tender, tenderly held part of genre. We like them. We enjoy sort of getting together. And, yeah, you want some recognition. And cheering on our friends. I would say at this point, though, like nerddom is so big and vast that, and varied and diverse that we can't really have one award speak for everyone. I feel like, if anything, we should probably have more awards. We got to institute the Morbies. Yeah, we got to bring back, <laughs> we got to bring out the Morbies and, <laughs> and uh, you know, whatever awards we need to make this more interesting for everyone. Be I mean, the Hugos, the Hu you know, I, I have been very public in saying I don't get the Hugos. They seem very alien and hostile to me. Hmm. And every time I say that, and another author steps up and says, well, you just don't get it. And I look at the Hugos and I'm like, all right, but we're kind of like ready to kill each other over this. <laughs> yeah. So like that seems pretty hostile to me. But uh, 
you know, I can certainly understand both sides in that, but I, you know, I sort of lean towards the people who are not slate voting in that instance because, you know, if this award is presumably for everyone, then yeah, we can't really set up a slate that says only these people should have this award. But I mean, the Hugos are kind of a fist fight, and it's my prediction that it will end with two people having a slap fight on a stage in front of an empty audience. <laughs> so, any any of my Hugo winning friends, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, listen, uh, they're all going to be trying to get a Morby here in a year. Oh, That's they'll true. be trying to get a Morby. You guys oh, yeah. will be competing for the stuffed cat. I can't wait. <laughs> It'll be beautiful. Can it be my cat, please? <laughs> <laughs> On behalf of myself, Corey Cassoni, Scott Kurtz, and Brad Geiger, thank you so much for joining us this week on Surviving Creativity. Special thanks to Sam Sykes for coming on the show and talking to us about your process and about the awards. If you like what you heard, head on over to patreon.com forward slash surviving creativity and please consider becoming a patron. This show is only made possible because of listeners like you. And if you're looking for more ways to listen to the show, remember, we're now available on iTunes. You can go to iTunes, search Surviving Creativity, Add us to your podcast listening stream and you'll get updated every single time we've got a new episode out. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week on Surviving Creativity.